This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss federal funding for and the research of Alzheimer's disease. With me to discuss these issues is the Alzheimer's Association's Chief Public Policy Officer and Executive VP of Government Affairs, Robert Eggie. Robert, thank you for your time. Glad to be here. Thank you. Robert Eggie's bio is, as always, uh, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, Alzheimer's is an irreversible progressive brain disease first identified in 1906. It accounts for approximately 70% of dementia diagnoses. The disease affects over 5 million Americans or upwards of 35 million worldwide, most of whom are over age 65. Disease burden is currently estimated to grow to 16 million patients in the U.S. by 2050, with projected costs at over $1 trillion. Patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's survive three to nine years. Half of all nursing home patients suffer from Alzheimer's. In the U.S., the disease accounts for approximately 500,000 deaths annually, making it the sixth leading cause of death, although some argue it may be as high as the third leading cause. While the disease is one of the most financially costly, the cause of it is not completely understood. The risk of disease is believed to be largely genetic. There are currently no treatments or medications to stop, reverse, or modify its progression, the only major disease with this distinction. Antipsychotics, however, are used frequently to curb related behavioral problems or psychosis associated with the disease. With me again to discuss related funding and research is the Alzheimer's Association, Robert Eggie. So with that, Robert, for the first question, let me ask you, just can you provide a brief overview of your association? The association uh, works across the board to deal with the Alzheimer's uh, crisis. And so much of what we do is to provide care and support to those who have the disease and to also to their caregivers. And then uh, we are the largest nonprofit funder of Alzheimer's research in the world. And we work hard to grow awareness uh, about Alzheimer's, what it's going to require from our country internationally to, to contend with the burden that you just described, which is set to grow quite a bit in the years to come. When it comes to public policy specifically, we uh, work on a number of fronts. Um, out of this office in Washington, D.C., our headquarters is in Chicago, but out of Washington, we work on government affairs for at the federal level, state, and public health. We work to develop good policies and to comment on those that we think need to be changed. And then uh, we work with advocates around the country. We've had a growing army of uh, grassroots advocates around the country now, and um, that's been a major reason why Washington and state capitals are starting to pay more and more attention to Alzheimer's today. Okay, great. Let's go first then on substance to the research. Uh, there are over 100 chemical compounds in phase three trials at the moment, many attempting to reduce these uh, plaque buildups in the brain. Uh, can you say how promising is or what is the current state of research on the curative side? So the state of research is that we have made progress, um, as, as could be said in almost every major disease. It isn't adequate yet, and the best indicator of that adequacy is the fact that today we still do not have, as you mentioned, a way to cure, prevent, or even slow its progression. And as you noted rightly, we stand out, unfortunately, in that regard. 
it's been challenging to develop um, treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And some of the reasons for that, well, let me give you one reason why that, that doesn't explain it. The uh, private sector has invested as aggressively in Alzheimer's disease uh, drug development as probably any other major condition. And they have uh, great incentives to do so. Uh, it hasn't worked out, though, in this area, and, and there are some reasons for that. Some are structural scientifically. For instance, whenever you're working in the brain across the board and, and neurodegeneration, it's been more difficult. Um, some of those basic mechanisms aren't as well understood. Uh, well, what we've also noted in Alzheimer's is that we are going to need to intervene earlier, pre-symptomatic. That leads to a number of issues. Some are scientific, some are, you might even describe as logistical. How do you identify populations that are pre-symptomatic, get them enrolled in trials, and uh, do that kind of work? Those are big challenges that we basically had to solve as a scientific community to get to the place where we can work on evaluating the most promising treatment strategies. So those have been going on. The other issue, though, is we just don't have a good enough understanding of the basic science mechanisms. So if you're to look at this from a drug development perspective, you have to make these big expensive bets on different targets. And if the underlying science isn't sufficiently resolved, those are some risky propositions that after a number of failures, you start to back away from. And um, the biggest, I think, the best explanatory variable right now for the fact that we don't have that basic science understood as we should is the level of um, investment that we've had from the federal government in basic science research through the NIH. Um, there, right now where we stand today in basic science research is just under 600 million at the National Institute of Health, primarily through the institute called the National Institute on Aging, which is the lead institute for this area of research in Alzheimer's. And outside of NIH is about another 50 million through the federal government in different areas like DOD and the VA system. But it's primarily an NIH story. And um, if you were to compare that just for a frame of reference to what's been invested in other areas that have led to um, some very promising, encouraging results, just to give you a frame, cancer is about 10 times as much now at about six, a little under $6 billion. Um, another frame of reference would be cardiovascular is about $2 billion. HIV AIDS is $3 billion. So that gives you a flavor of how we have mobilized to really understand the basic mechanisms of other diseases. We're convinced as a scientific community, we've convened top Alzheimer's scientists that if we got up to about that same level in Alzheimer's research, we'd really see these pieces fall into place in terms of our understanding, which we think would unlock much more productive drug development. Well, before we leave the research, and I'll, we'll go to funding since you brought it started uh, that discussion, but before we leave research, let me ask you about, there's been much press the last few years about a blood test. So a simple blood test, um, or there are blood tests that show promise relative to diagnosing patients who are uh, pre-symptomatic. This is important for several reasons, least of which is that a significant percentage of people with Alzheimer's are undiagnosed. And of course, if they would be diagnosed, then maybe they could get more appropriate or earlier uh, mm -hmm. uh, or make accommodation or intervention. Yes. What, what's the status of blood testing for? So the status of blood testing is right now that there are a number of indicators that give hope. Um, this is something that many, uh, many academic centers and also private entities are actively pursuing because it's, it's uh, plausible from what we see so far that we could get to those kind, that holy grail in the sense of 
that blood test that's easy to administer and give you this rich, precise data on your status, um, even pre-symptomatic. Um, so far, we're not there yet. So what we have are some early phase trials that show that this could lead to something, but we can't say that for sure. And it's an extremely difficult area to develop. So we're glad this work is going on. We would love to get to that kind of a test. In the meantime, there are other biomarkers that are starting to give us a much, they're uh, more difficult to administer, but they give us information we didn't have before and are really, especially the research side, um, unlocking our potential to, to run the kinds of trials we need. Um, they typically are imaging tests that look at the brain and can pick up two of the biggest scientific um, validated biomarkers for the development of Alzheimer's. One is called beta amyloid and the other is called tau. Um, and so those are the most promising areas. There's also with um, you know lumbar puncture, cerebral spinal fluid, there's um, a lot of progress on that front as well. So those are the things we'll get to first, almost certainly, in terms of uh, precise biomarkers and down the road, hopefully as soon as possible, we get to those more convenient uh, tests. If they work out, that'd be great. Okay, thank you. Let's go then to funding. You did mention the amount of funding at NIH. Newt Gingrich, as you're well aware, had an editorial in the New York Times last week calling for a doubling of the NIH budget since the budget has been effectively reduced 20% due to the combination of medical inflation and flood funding over the last 12 years. And an additional reason Speaker Gingrich cited was, and he cited the fact that NIH spends, and he noted, $1.3 billion on related research. And then he, per your point of putting that amount of money or any amount of money in context, he said that that amount of money, $1.3 billion, is less than 1% of the over $150 billion Medicare and Medicaid spends annually on all forms of dementia. So this gets to the question more on point, and that is, how are we trending, at least, relative to uh, funding? The president in 2012 and 2013 added $130 million to uh, Alzheimer's research, and if his 16 budget request uh, moves, which of course is probably mm -hmm. unlikely, we'll see a 55% increase in Alzheimer's research uh, since 2008. So how are we doing? Not how are we trending? Well, um, a good way to frame it is in terms of that op-ed. There's been a number of people on a bipartisan basis who are pointing out, and we say the same, that overall NIH is just a fantastic engine across the board. So we support overall increases. It's not surprising that a former speaker went to Alzheimer's to sort of make his case because it is an area that stands out most starkly in terms of not just the need and what we're being held back by, but the opportunity if we were to invest appropriately at appropriate levels in biomedical research. Um, and I do believe that Alzheimer's stands out as perhaps the most uh, compelling case of the need to act. The um, one, because I know your listeners are really into getting the, the details um, on this, um, one area of that op-ed that, that needed correction was the $1.3 billion figure that was cited actually added together a category of Alzheimer's research and dementia as if they were mutually exclusive. And it turns out that Alzheimer's sits within the circle of dementia research and is by far the largest area of research. So the overall figure is, is um, for Alzheimer's research really captures most of it. Uh, that gave earlier just under 600 million with a bit more for other parts of dementia research. So 
But, you know, one way to look at this is even if you took that sort of doubled figure inaccurately in the Gingrich op-ed, it still makes the case so compellingly about how underinvested we are compared to the amount we pay out in care right now in Medicare and Medicaid and where that's going into the future. So um, to look just briefly at where we've been with Alzheimer's research, we're basically at a level in terms of the overall NIH outlays that was established about 1990, 1992, somewhere in there, a little over 20 years ago. And we have stayed in that position of under 2% of total NIH outlays over the last 20 years. It hasn't adjusted, even though we have a much better understanding now of Alzheimer's impact than we did 20 years ago. Today, we have a much better impact, understanding of its impact into the future and where we're heading. So one thing that we've been focused on from a policy perspective is how do we get um, how do we get an institution like the NIH and Congress and their role to be able to have the flexibility to recognize emerging issues and to focus the resources that are there for to seize these opportunities. And part of the story of that is to raise NIH overall. And the more specific part that we need to make sure happens here is that we recognize what needs to be done in Alzheimer's and, and boost that up uh, specifically. Okay, and there is uh, legislation currently uh, in the Congress, the 21st Century Cures Act, I'm sure you're well yes. aware of it, and that may actually provide the engine to help increase the NIH budget beyond the $30 billion in sum. Let's go to this National Alzheimer's Plan. Mm -hmm. uh, this came about uh, in context, it was a provision in the 2011 National Alzheimer's Project Act, which was signed by President Obama. What, what is this plan? What does it tend to accomplish? So prior to the reason we uh, emphasized the need and, and worked with Congress to draft this legislation referred to the National Alzheimer's Project Act, and what drove us to do this and why I think on a bipartisan basis Congress supported this unanimously is um, that prior to that date, it's hard to imagine, but it, you would not have been able to find a single person in the federal government, or maybe it's easy for you to imagine, uh, um, a single person in the federal government who would say, I'm thinking comprehensively about the Alzheimer's issue, that if terminal disease affecting 5 million Americans, and I, and I could articulate for you what our plan is to deal with it as a federal government. There was no such plan. We had great public servants in a number of different agencies who were thinking within the framework they were unable to think within, but nobody was thinking about the bigger picture and how solutions might need to span across agencies and departments and where we needed to get. Fundamentally, we could not answer as a country the question, were we satisfied with last year's progress in the fight against Alzheimer's? Because we didn't know where we were and where we were going to a significant degree in terms of policy. So there were other provisions in what we call NAPA, this bill, but the major one, as you point to, is that the Congress mandated that the administration create a comprehensive national Alzheimer's plan. And uh, to their credit, they did so. The Alzheimer's Association, you asked about what we do. One thing we did during that process was to ensure they had public comments from about thir over 30,000 people around the country who were affected by Alzheimer's. That factored into the plan they came up with, as well as policy comments and the rest. And I think they came up with a very good structure for um, how to think about, in policy terms, what we need to do in Alzheimer's. And it started with research. It set the goal that had not existed before to effectively treat and prevent Alzheimer's by 2025. 
which has led to a very important stream of work at the NIH and elsewhere. And it is also then talked about what needs to be done on the care side with less precision, but still some very important notions, and also in terms of long-term services and supports, what needs to be done in the community and, and other settings. And then finally, very important to us as wonks, that it had a uh, section that talked about how we're going to measure progress and ensure that we are on track year by year to reach these targets. So that's the structure of the plan um, as it exists today. We also made sure that in that legislation, NAPA, there was a provision that called for the annual updating of that plan and also um, that this progress report had to be reported to Congress and also to a body that was created through NAPA called the Alzheimer's Advisory Council that the CEO of the Alzheimer's Association and others sit on together with federal partners and meet quarterly just last week was the most recent meeting to talk about progress and what needs to be done. Okay, so there's an annual update. There is an annual update, yes. Okay, great. Good to know. Yeah. Since you mentioned the CARE side, let's go to that. Sure. There is funding, uh, federal funding, to help improve caregiving, uh, help support family caregivers. You talked about social services and supports. Um, the Centers for Innovation, CMS, has, has made uh, several awards. Uh, the Patient Center Outcome Research Institute has ostensibly one award, two uh, more uh, additional awards, more minor. But where are we relative to assisting and helping families uh, with uh, members who have the diagnosis? I didn't say in, in the top of this mm -hmm. interview that it's estimated that the cost to a family annually for a family member with the diagnosis is approximately $80,000. It is it is remarkably steep. Um, the price that families face, it, it's, it's captured in the uh, in an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine two years ago that was conducted by Rand Economists, um, funded by NIH, which found that Alzheimer's is now the most expensive disease in America. And and the story behind that, as we already mentioned, there are expensive biologics that are available that this money is going to, as you might explain, the cost in other disease areas. There aren't those kinds of treatments. Instead, what explains this cost, and this is just the direct cost, not the shadow cost of caregivers and others, which is also extremely important and their lost income, et cetera. Exactly. There are, there are, this isn't even accounting for that yet. That what New England Journal of Medicine article and what we have found as well, an independent result, uh, research leading to the exact same conclusions, is that this cost is accounted for by the care that healthcare professionals have to provide. It's also um, explainable when you look at what happens in terms of trying to provide care for those with Alzheimer's and dementias. Often, as you mentioned rightly, undiagnosed, unrecognized, and I'll say a bit more about that. Um, but what happens is that they go into a care system that was never designed for them in terms of people with cognitive impairment. You could say that in general about a lot of geriatric conditions and disease conditions that are associated with aging, but certainly when you get to cognitive impairments, it's, it's profoundly the case that our system just wasn't ever, they didn't think from that frame of reference when it was designed it was all in just fundamental terms in the 60s and, right. and onward, right? So, um, so it's a system that does not work well for this major population. And the, the symptoms of this not working well are seen in things like rehospitalization, preventable hospitalizations. They're seen in the, um, the cost that escalates dramatically when you try to account and manage coexisting conditions. For instance, if you were to take diabetes, 
and you're to compare the costs of uh, population diabetes when you control for other factors like age for those with Alzheimer's and those without. Um, the cost goes up not quite twofold, about two-thirds uh, two thirds higher for those with Alzheimer's disease. And when you put yourself in the shoes of the person with the disease or their care providers, you understand quickly why. Managing medications becomes extremely complex when you have cognitive impairment. Um, you need a caregiver who in the advantage of Alzheimer's to do that at all. But even in the early stages, it becomes very problematic. And so managing these conditions is difficult. And when that happens, you, leave, you end up with hospitalizations that otherwise would have been prevented um, if you didn't have that Alzheimer's or dementia. So that's, that's sketching sort of where we are in terms of the challenges and broad strokes today with Alzheimer's is it interacts with our healthcare system and how that you can see sort of the manifestations of that in terms of cost. What you can see as readily is the manifestations just in terms of well-being and um, what families are going through today. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, and that can be said for many di different conditions. It's heartbreaking in the case of Alzheimer's when you look at two different things. When you look at what that means to families with the cost of it and how quickly families run right through uh, the savings that they have. I was just listening, talking with families uh, the other week at a town hall meeting with Senator Blunt in Missouri, where they were explaining uh, those costs you outlined, how people had saved well their entire lives, just ran through that in no time when they're trying to provide on their own the care that's required. And just um, to note, yeah. Medicare does not provide for long-term care, and few people are yes, or even right. able to afford long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance, what market there was has basically been um, collapsing as for those with Alzheimer's and cognitive impairments. Um, if you try to get that insurance once you have a diagnosis, forget about it because they're not going to. And you can understand from a mm -hmm. from their fiduciary duty why that's the case. It's, it's that expensive. They can't figure out a, a, a for-profit model to make this happen. And that's not to blame them. It's just the costs are such there isn't a market here. Um, but while you can understand that, it leaves the families with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias as a, in a very tough bind. Even those who have been proactive and have sought out long-term care insurance today, it's extremely expensive because Alzheimer's blows the costs out so much. And um, at, in net hasn't been, there aren't good solutions there. Um, as you mentioned, Medicare is uh, it's often incorrectly assume that Medicare covers this kind of long-term coverage. It does not. You're right about that. And Medicaid does, and it's been an important lifeline for many, but it often doesn't provide the care that people would hope for, and it doesn't, um, to get to the point where you're eligible, often families will have to spend down a tremendous amount um, to meet the eligibility requirements for Medicaid. And by that point, the care, the spouse, for instance, if there is one, can be impoverished as well. It's just a, a set of difficult problems that we currently don't have good solutions to. Okay, thank you. Let me just ask, we have time for one wrap-up question. Let's sure. go back to the plan. Yes. The objective, moreover, is by 2025. Yes, yeah, right. What's, what's your prognosis? Well, I, just a sneak in a comment that wraps the research and the care together, one thing that we often emphasize is that you shouldn't disentangle those two things as two separate conversations. If you look at, you can go back as uh, you referred to the Gingrich op-ed, if you go back to that op-ed and you look to a story like polio, care for polio changed radically 
pre and post vaccine from iron lungs to a very different situation. If you look more recently to HIV AIDS, and you looked at the projections of where we'd be in terms of hospital burden and all the rest, um, before we started to have therapeutic breakthroughs, it was profoundly different. One reason we're able to provide better care for those with those conditions is now we have treatments from research. So we look at it holistically. In terms of the, um, the ability to reach 2025, um, the good news is that the NIH has consulted with us and with others around the world and their own internal staff to articulate milestones year by year of what it will take to be on track to hit 2025. So we're not just flying dark here in terms of whether we're getting it done. The, the other point of this, though, is that when those projects are identified, we have to make sure the funding's there to fund them. Today it isn't. And so my optimism for 2025 is conditional on Congress providing the resources that are needed to get there. And right now that stands as an open question. Um, we're hearing very encouraging things on a bipartisan basis about recognition of the problem, it's a tough environment we respect to get this done. We are optimistic, though, that Congress is thinking hard about how they're going to do this. And I am optimistic about that the answer to the question will be that the resources are now going to start to become available to catch up and, and ultimately get ahead of this disease. So the wherewithal to put the budget numbers together. That's right. That's right. The wherewithal is there. We've had some important things that maybe some year we'll do around two and talk about some things like what's called the Alzheimer's Accountability Act which became lodged a few months ago, another thing we pushed, which will lead to professional judgment budgets directly to Congress from NIH that says exactly the dollar amounts they need. So there, there are a lot of different mechanisms here that we're making it as easy as possible for Congress to do a difficult thing, which is to find money in this environment to get our uh, research funding up to where it needs to be. Robert, thank you very much. Right. A very helpful conversation. Appreciate Great. it. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.